You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Tony Cronman, who is a professor of law at Yale Law School, also teaches in the Directed Studies program there at Yale, and is the author of many books. I think the first book was this one called The Lost Lawyer. It's the only one I don't have with me. It's somewhere in storage, but I remember it very well. And so I'm hoping that my memory hasn't failed me. Hopefully we can talk about some of the themes in that book. But more recently, you've written a book called Education's End, Why Our Colleges and Universities Have Given Up on the Meaning of Life. And I guess this is like a sequel to that. It's The Assault on American Excellence, also about the Academy. And then you have two other books here. This one is called Confessions of a Born-Again Pagan. And the most recent book is called After Disbelief on Disenchantment, Disappointment, Eternity, and Joy. And for such a narrow book, (laughs) the goal is to cover (laughs) the entire human experience. And you've covered so much ground. We were just discussing before the podcast started your journey. And I always thought of you as following in the tradition of de Tocqueville and of Weber, right? And thinking about democracy and how to protect democracy and the kind of tension between democracy and aristocratic ideals and how maybe the legal profession and universities and to some degree religion act as kind of counterbalances to some of the worst or the dangers of democratic life. But I think now I see you as almost inheriting a tradition of Spinoza and Nietzsche and Walt Whitman where you are, I guess, pioneering a third religious tradition. And, you know, when I was reading your books, your work on religion, it made me realize that you're not alone. There are a lot of people that think the way you do. You know, we don't don't have an official church. (laughs) We don't have a a place where we can convene. And I don't think that the language really exists, at least in the public realm. And you mentioned that your colleagues think you're a little nuts because bring religion and religious discussions into the mainstream. I don't know where to start. I guess maybe we could start with the the Tocquevillian side of the story and how you came to realize the importance of character development. Because somebody who started as a Marxist, you studied philosophy, but you started as a Marxist, you you know, that's typically Marxists don't talk about character. They don't talk about judgment. Did this come about as a result of your, your doctoral work with Weber, or did this come about really after immersing yourself mm. in the legal world? Yeah. Okay, gee, perhaps begin with an autobiographical comment, and then we can talk about the philosophical question, the relationship between elite institutions, habits, practices, the aristocratic cast of mind, which Tocqueville associates very powerfully with the legal profession in America, the relationship between all of that and democratic institutions and democratic values on the other. But let me start briefly with me. I'm much more interested in talking about the ideas than in retracing the steps of my own not terribly interesting personal voyage. I was a student activist as an undergraduate at Williams College, and then for a short time, afterwards in graduate school at Yale. I cared passionately about the political issues of the day. There were two in particular 
that held me in their grip, as they did many in my generation. One was civil rights in the United States, and the other was the Vietnam War abroad and American foreign policy generally. And I was a fierce champion of racial equality in America and an equally fierce opponent of what at the time I would have described as a late colonialist misadventure in Southeast Asia. I have never once for a moment felt that either of those substantive commitments of mine were mistaken at the time or afterwards. In hindsight, all these years on, they seem to me to have been honorable and deeply American convictions, commitments. And I'm actually quite proud of that younger self who picked up the flag and said, uh, these things really matter and I'm going to march for racial equality and against the war in Vietnam. But I was more, when I was 22 or 23 or 5, more than just a uh, defender of those views or positions. I was very much enchanted by the large, global, rigorous, all-encompassing explanations that various social theorists on the left, starting with Marx, you know, his long line of successors as well, offered of what was happening in the political world as I understood it, and helped me put my convictions and commitments in place. And I think I was drawn in that direction because of temperamental quality, which I still possess. It's morphed and undergone changes many times over, perhaps in now unrecognizable ways. But I still think of myself as a passionately theoretical person. But at the time, I wanted a political philosophy that would explain absolutely everything that I thought needed explaining, could be explained, had to be explained about the whole vast world of politics. That instinct, so far as its application to politics was concerned, gradually attenuated. I didn't repudiate it emphatically, although in later years I pretty much did. I came to see it as a danger and not a source of enlightenment, so far as political responsibility is concerned. But I was drawn toward other political thinkers. Tocqueville is one. Edmund Burke was another. David Hume is a third who had a less strenuous appetite for abstraction in political thinking or were even actively opposed to it as a danger and a threat, as in Burke's case. Was it abstraction or was it really the realization that the, there was no point when you would achieve, aha, now I understand everything? Right? Yes, I mean, I think that's that what I mean by abstraction. Burke in great essay on the revolution in France rails against those he calls political metaphysicians. They are addicted, he says, to abstraction. They want, as you just said, a totalizing picture that puts everything neatly in its place. They want arguments that possess a deductive transparency and force. And he said, politics doesn't allow this. And if you ask for it or insist on it, you will create mischief for yourself and the community 
to which you belong. So don't do it. He several times quoted Aristotle's semi-famous dictum to the effect that it is the sign of a wise person to know what level of precision a particular inquiry will yield. It is as much a mistake, Aristotle says, to expect plausibilities from a mathematician as it is to demand certainties of a politician or a rhetorician. And that lesson, Aristotle's lesson, which Burke embraced, began to settle in on me, I think especially in the years after I completed my doctoral dissertation on Max Weber, who was still very much in, some would say, in the totalizing genre, though Weber is a very different thinker and writer than Marx. But when I went to law school and immersed myself in the give and take and unseemly disorder of the common law with all of its tangles and thickets, I discovered that I, to survive, I had to suspend my theoretical ambitions, put them aside, and give, them, give myself over to this very different discipline. Anyway, that's how I came eventually to the view that the virtues of law practice, of the lawyer as a professional type, are not just different from, but in certain respects, quite fundamentally opposed to the virtues of the political metaphysician the clear-headed, speculative, comprehensive, world-historic thinker of the kind that I had been more attracted to in my youth, Marx and Weber being the two leading examples. So that's me. Now, with respect to the substantive question, philosophical and historical, that you raised about democracy and elitism, it is, you know, looking back at the books I've written over the last number of years, they do have this theme as a continuing thread that runs through them. And I might put it in the following way. I am a devoted Democrat in the sense that I believe the principle of popular sovereignty, appropriately tempered and filtered and made indirect in all of the ways, for example, that our constitutional system does, is the best system of government that human beings have ever devised. Not just because it is the most durable and workable, but because it is the one that honors most directly and fully the glorious fact of human eccentricity, diversity, individual sentiment, expression, habit, belief, and the like. So I love my democracy, I'm deeply committed to it, but also mindful of its shortcomings, deficiencies, the dangers that lie in its path, and the tendency at times for it to run off the rails altogether. And we may be living through one of these particularly dangerous moments right now. I'm not going to speculate about that. But the question of what can be done to 
keep the best and build protective bulwarks, prophylactic bulwarks against the worst? That's a question that has preoccupied me for a very long time. And this is how Tocqueville talks about lawyers in his great book on America. He says, the legal profession, that is America's aristocracy. Lawyers are conservative by training, by outlook, by habit. And that's a good thing. They're like the speed bumps for to tyranny, right? Exactly. To tyranny and, more generally, to the rapidity with which democratic culture turns over the soil every 10 minutes so that things tend not to last for very long at all. And Tocqueville thought that was one of the unattractive aspects of democratic life, the reverence for novelty, innovation, at the expense of everything stable, old, revered. He wasn't against change, but he thought that some do regard the work of those who've gone before and for the accumulated, conserved culture of an evolved civilization, that he thought that was a good thing up to a point. It could become hidebound and paralyzing, but good up to a point. And that the lawyers in America helped to maintain a healthy balance between a reverence for the past, which goes under the name of precedent and old old decisions and all the, the rest, and the inevitable process of replacement, innovation, novelty, which is characteristic of the whole of democratic life. And why was I drawn to that? Well, it appealed to me theoretically. I could see, I'd given some thought to the ways in which structural features of our constitutional system of government help to keep our way of life in balance. The Supreme Court and judicial review play a role of this sort, I think. Whether it can or will continue to do so is perhaps an open question, but has. I could see how various structural features of the Constitution did this, but I became interested in more, broadly speaking, cultural forces that might be thought to do something along the same lines. And there I was, a lifelong, committed Democrat, champion of popular sovereignty, and an inhabitant from the minute I left my public high school in Southern California to take the red eye to Boston and travel up to Eastern Massachusetts and Williams College, I've been a happy inhabitant of, and then spokesman for, some of the most elite institutions in America. When I became the dean of the Yale Law School and was charged for a time with being its official voice, I don't know that my colleagues would ever have agreed to that characterization, I could have said, shame on us, we're, we're so undemocratic, as we certainly were and are, and we should be embarrassed by that. But I wasn't inclined to do that. I took pride in my school and in the work we were doing. And perhaps some might say, in order to tamp down my own psychic dissonance, felt compelled to explain how the work of that institution and others like it actually 
contributed to the good health over the long term of a vibrant democratic republic like ours. And then I finished up my stint as the dean and took a year off and went back to teaching and started teaching in the directed studies program, which is a kind of an old-fashioned great books program for first-year students in Yale College. How many people do that now? Out of maybe 200, 250 applicants, we take 120 a year. That's not quite 10% of the entering class. It takes a particular kind of kid to be drawn to the program, and you've got to be willing to put your eager, anxious vocationalism aside for a short bit and assume that it's going to be good for you in the long run if you spend a year reading Montaigne and Plato and Don Quixote and Hannah Arendt and, you know, on and on. So there's some selection here, but the kids are great, and I love teaching in the program. And for me, it was a busman's holiday. Uh, Going back to these books, many, but by no means all of which I'd read as an undergraduate or in the course of my graduate training at Yale, and to read them again with the care that you have to if you're going to teach them responsibly. And it was just a, just, and it continues to be a wonderful experience. I teach in DS every year. So that got me thinking about liberal arts programs of the kind that directed studies represents. Now it's not quite a singleton, but it's a rarity. Once upon a time, every college in America liberal arts college in America had a program more or less like this one. And why did they disappear? What were the pressures that led to their attenuation? What was the good of those programs? How can they be explained in ways that sit comfortably with our shared democratic values? So there again, the same question. And then more recently, I have been forced by the idiocy on my campus and others like it around the country into a more churlish posture than temperamentally is my natural habitat. I'm a cheerful and optimistic person. I don't like being a naysayer and a grouch, but I look at what's happened in the humanities in particular, but in the arts and sciences more generally to undergraduate education under the assault of the waves of politicization that have washed over our campuses and continue to do so. And it, it just appalled me. It seemed to me to be a misconceived and misbegotten challenge to a way of life that correctly understood was not antagonistic to democratic egalitarianism, but actually a constructive complement to it and an essential element in the mix. And so that all moved me to write The Assault on American Excellence. And I went from Education's End, which is a little, you might say, elegiac in its tone. Well, I went from The Lost Lawyer, which is, there's a slight pall of wistfulness that hangs over it, to the end of education, to the assault on excellence. And I guess these are all in a somewhat negative key, although my negativity, so far as those three books are concerned, has gotten a bit more strident. And I'm now working on 
a new book, which is really so far just a collection of essays on various topics that I, in my mind I've gathered under the provisional title of The Bullied Pulpit about the retreat of our cultural institutions of all sorts in the country, their retreat from a responsible devotion to culture in the old-fashioned, high-minded Roman sense of excellence, of connoisseurship, refinement, excellence and deepening of character. So I'll be farther out on some whacked out limb, and at some point somebody's just going to saw it off, and that'll be it. But, uh, but anyway, so that's one whole preoccupation of mine. Then another, which overlaps with it but is distinct, although it does go back to what we were talking about earlier, is the following. My appetite for theoretical extremes, extravagance, for systems of thought that aim at totalizing rigorous, compelling explanations of absolutely everything under the sun. That old appetite which was what moved me or drew me to Marx and Weber, that didn't just fall out of my soul. It got redirected. And I guess I would say that its object now for a very long time has been the meaning and nature of what philosophers, beginning with Aristotle, call substance, the one fundamental think of which everything else is built or on which everything else rests. What is it? What, if anything, can we know about it? What is the relationship of this one thing, substance, to all the diverse many things that we see are about us in the world? This is the ancient philosophical question of the one and the many. This was Plato's question. It was Aristotle's question. They pursued it ruthlessly, with a no-holds-barred, theoretically rigorous way. And that fascinated me. And that appealed to my old theoretical instincts and appetites. But I realized at some point that, of course, that very same search for an understanding of the nature and amplitude of substance is what defines the whole long tradition of Christian theology and post-Christian theological and metaphysical speculation. The entire long tradition of thinking about the meaning and nature of God. So that became my new philosophical obsession, and I was determined to try to get to the bottom of it, as I had been determined years ago to get to the bottom of the capitalist system of production or, or the Occidental rationality to understand these things perfectly and completely. Now I wanted to understand God perfectly and completely. And so I just let myself go. And I came eventually back to a philosopher who I had grazed as an undergraduate at Williams, enjoyed but not been able to make much sense of at all, put him back on my bookshelf and said, he may have something there, but I don't have time to, to figure it out. And that was Spinoza, who has been my pole star for some time. So here I am, Greg. Here's how I would describe my 
bipolarism. I am, when it comes to philosophical, metaphysical, theological matters, I am as extreme, as ruthless, as unboundedly rational as my favorite philosopher, Spinoza. When it comes to politics, I know that spirit has to be put aside for my own good and for the good of my community. When it comes to politics, I'm a Burkean. So how can I be a Spinozist when I'm thinking about God and a Burkean when I'm thinking about politics? Two temperaments more different than these one cannot possibly conceive. And yet I feel now that I have come or am coming to a happy adjustment between these two. Of course, they can't really be reconciled, but it is quite possible to say that human beings, by their nature, yearn for a completeness of understanding and a perfection of vision, which leads them inevitably in the direction of the speculative refinements of thinkers like Plato and Aristotle and Augustine, Aquinas, Leibniz, Spinoza, Nietzsche even. I could go on and on. That this is part of our human equipment and a human life which offered no scope for that would be incomplete, it would be defective. But we're not just that. We're also political beings who are doing our best to sustain a workable way of life with others with whom we intermittently get along, but not much more than that. And the best regime is one that allows some space for free inquiry, for speculation, for philosophy, or as we say in this country, for religion, which is extravagant by its very nature, allows some room for that, but separates that pursuit from the political work of government itself. We call this the separation of church and state. And we all more or less think we know what that means. I've come to understand it in perhaps a rather peculiar, if not idiosyncratic way, as the separation between the natural extremism of the human longing for understanding and knowledge on the one hand, and the political requirement for prudence, adjustment, conciliation, and the rejection of metaphysics and metaphysical arguments in the domain of political life. And that actually is what I'm writing about now. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think when you talk about de Tocqueville and you talk about John Adams, I think that they were aware of this tension. And they also said that it's a tension that's necessary, right, in order to have a good society with good people in it. And the theme has come back in a bunch of different formats, right? I think at one point you talked about universities as being islands of excellence in a democratic sea, right? But what I found interesting about your more recent work on religion is that after spending a time emphasizing what made the profession of law, legal scholarship, kind of special, and after emphasizing what made the humanities special, 
you come back to emphasizing that the things that make them special, you, you see also in, in science, you see in, in love, and you draw these parallels between science and philosophy and literature and art and love, and you say that all of these are best understood as pursuits that will never reach any kind of end point, right? Yes, yes. But you need to have some belief that there is this kind of end point or destination to keep you from peeling back the the limitless layers of onion. Yeah, I would put it in the following way. Here are two remarkable things about human beings. And by remarkable, I don't mean unusual or exceptional. Quite the opposite. I think they're very familiar. We see and experience them both. But remarkable in the sense that they should give us pause despite or maybe precisely because they are so familiar. The first is that we cannot help but set challenges for ourselves, that we are, by our very nature, incapable of meeting. We can't meet them, not just accidentally because things happen to go wrong, when they might have gone right, they're challenges that have defeat inscribed in their very being. The scientist's ambition to know everything that can be known about the world and to know it transparently, we're just never going to get there. The fact that we won't doesn't mean that the ambition can ever be stilled. We can't suppress it. So that's one remarkable thing about us, that we seem to be obsessively driven to set goals for ourselves that we're incapable of attaining. The second equally remarkable is that even though we can't reach them, they always lie beyond, maybe even infinitely beyond, our capacity to know or to achieve. Even though that's true, still we are able to make meaningful progress toward their achievement. It isn't as if we're stuck in place, as if the gap, which in one way is always infinitely large, were infinitely large to the same degree or in the same way as it was the week or year or century before. We make progress in science. We are able to get closer to that unattainable goal. And I think the same is true in personal love as well. I picked that as an example in this most recent book, because it is so far removed from the precincts of science that if I could make a plausible case for my view there, that would lend some color of reasonableness to my saying these are features of the human condition. The first step in this new, my most recent book is to say, here are two remarkable things about us. that We set goals we can never reach, one, and two, that even though we can't reach them, we can make some incremental and meaningful progress. The second step is to say, for all of that to be possible at all, those are features of the human condition. They're built into us as human beings. For that to be possible, for us to be the kind of beings who can set unreachable goals, but still by incremental degrees approximate them most closely, what must the world be like? the world that we inhabit. And I won't rehearse the whole argument here, but my conclusion is 
the world to explain the very possibility of our having the experiences we do as human beings that are definitive of our humanity. For our humanity to be possible, the world that we inhabit must be eternal and divine. The world itself, which is Spinoza's conclusion. It's the world as Spinoza sees it. The world is God. A substance and world are just two different terms for the very same thing. And so I come, starting with a kind of a commonsensical portrait of the human condition, I come to the ecstatic conclusion that for this picture to make any sense at all, for it to be possible for us even to entertain this picture, the world must be divine beyond our wildest imaginings, even though we'll never get our arms around it all together. And that brings me, I wouldn't say peace, because there's no peace to be had here, you know, where you make a little progress and you hit a plateau and then you feel bored and you experience ennui and then all of a sudden something strikes you when you want to push on and maybe you feel that you've gotten a little farther and joy is the experience of upward motion, of, as Spinoza says, moving from one level of power, as he puts it, to a higher one. So you say that deep disappointment is our fate. I think that's one of your quotes, right? Yeah. We are doomed to be disappointed. That's sort of what it makes us human in ways that other animals can never experience. But we're not doomed to be disenchanted, right? Disenchantment is really of of the modern world, right? We live through this era of disenchantment. And you're trying to kind of re-enchant the world. But in order for us to have this sense of wonder and enchantment, right, we have to have a notion of kind of better and worse, right? I mean, if we're making progress, what, what does that progress mean? And is it enough you can improve your knowledge of the world and say, oh, now I know this more math than I did before, or now I know I have a couple different models that I didn't have before, and I know what viruses cause what diseases. But isn't it important for you that we also have a notion of what it is to be better simply as a human being, right? Independent of our knowledge. I mean, you make this important distinction between, you say that the art of living is something that can be learned. It's something that can be taught, but it's not built on knowledge per se. In other words, it's not built on expertise the way it's normally understood. Is it essential that our sense of wonder encompass a view of what it means to be a better human being in order for us to be enchanted or can people just be enchanted by learning some physics and, you know, learn. That's an interesting observation and a wonderful question. I would answer in the following way, learning new things, adding to the stockpile of your knowledge or expertise. That is one familiar way of illustrating progress, forward motion in an enterprise or in a discipline. You go to graduate school, you learn many things. You master many techniques. At the end, you are a better accomplished philosopher or economist or whatever. That's progress of a kind. But you're absolutely right that progress for me is hardly limited to that. And it's not even the most important kind of progress that I generally have in mind when I think about the meaning of the word or the phenomenon. 
progress in sensibility is, to me, vastly more important. Developing capacity to recognize and to appreciate what is distinctive and worth observation and perhaps even close study in another human being who you may not like all that much or feel a, an immediate personal rapport for, but who you can see as an individual of a striking and interesting sort. To be able to do that more regularly, more emphatically, with a greater investment of curiosity and patience, and even at the end of the day of fellowship or fellow feeling. That is, to me, making progress in sensibility. And as I say these words, I'm thinking about my favorite American poet, Walt Whitman, to whom I devote a chapter at the very end of Confessions of a Born, again, pagan. Whitman said, it's a line that took me back when I read it, I said, what does he mean by this? And then, as I thought about it more, the deep truth in it struck me. He said, everyone is divine, but only the poet knows it. So, that combines two very different thoughts. There's a democratic distribution of divinity. It's egalitarian in the sense that no one is more divine than anyone else, although each of us is divine in our own utterly singular way. And yet most of us are unheedful of that. We don't see it or we get glimpses of it and we don't pay the attention to it that it merits, that it demands. The poet does. The poet is the person whose soul is in a state of advancement, has gotten farther down the road than the rest of us. And that's progress. It's not an expertise. Learning things and knowing them may be a part of it, Greg, may be a part of acquiring the equipment. I call it a sensibility, the spiritual equipment that the poet possesses. But more goes into it than that. But that is what really matters to me. And to just circle way back to the beginning in The Lost Lawyer, when I think about the lawyer's virtues, the virtues of a really great lawyer, their qualities not of the lawyer's superiority, the lawyer's dignity. It is not a function of knowledge alone, or maybe even most importantly. Of course, it is important, and that's why you go to lawyers, because they do know things that non-lawyers don't. You hope that uh, they'll put their expertise to use on your behalf. But it's in a good lawyer, let alone a great lawyer. It's more than that. It's a sense and attunement to people, to their idiosyncrasies. We talk about balancing empathy and detachment, and you, you circle back to that balancing act in a bunch of different contexts, right? Because you talk about just the act of reading and engaging a yes. text is also one where you have to play the role of yes. advocate and judge and flip back and forth. And that's what it means to have a, a real conversation, right? So cause there, yes. you have to listen, but then you also have to judge and evaluate. And 
and, and it seems like that's a skill. It is a skill in a sense, but I guess it's more of a, you're, you're saying it's more of a, t- it's a temperament. It's a kind of practical wisdom that you develop over time. It bridges the divide. I don't think it's a very sharp divide at all. It may not be any divide, but bridges the divide between what we normally think of as skills, as acquired powers on the one hand, and as qualities of character or temperament, as dispositional traits on the other. The first we think of most often, I suppose, in cognitive terms as sort of a stockpile. You put together a stockpile of bits of information and of techniques. Those are things you possess. The other is kind of who you are, you know, what kind of person you are temperamentally, by inclination, which way do you lean? Of course, we know that people have character traits, that they have dispositions, that they're temperamentally this or that. And the good lawyer is an expert, but also someone temperamentally disposed to a certain way of interacting with others and with clients in particular that involves this, the push and pull of giving yourself over, but holding enough in reserve so that you're able to pass judgment on the wisdom or folly of what it is you're hearing. And you're absolutely right. I hadn't really thought about it. You're absolutely right. And I'm flattered and honored by the care with with which you've read what I've written. The very same push-pull is at work in the student reading the book late at night alone in the library or in her dorm room that she's got to be able to give herself over to Don Quixote and yet hold it at arm's length far enough at least to say this whole thing is a farce it's ridiculous and it's meant to be a farce and what an absurd man and yet what a lovable man and how can he be so farcical and idiotic and yet so humanly familiar and lovable too. And just as a training in the law is meant, as I see it, to inculcate this ensemble of temperamental attitudes or habits, dispositions, I think a liberal education, an undergraduate liberal education, is meant to do something similar. Habits that are a close cousin to those that are carried forward and given a particular direction in law school. Mm-hmm. But like someone who is a defender of aristocratic ideals, right, who is bemoaning the leveling, right, the democratic mm-hmm. negation, the relativism, right, the lack of normativity, right, in so many yeah. domains, to some people they would say, well, it's kind of odd that he would hold up the lawyer as an ideal, right? Because over history, the lawyers have always gotten a bad rap as being, they can take any argument, right? They can spin up an argument in favor, spin up an argument against, and if you ask them to flip sides, they'll flip sides on a dime. They're just basically sophists, right? Yeah. yeah. So why is it that people have that perception of lawyers What is it that they're missing? And to some extent, how much has the legal profession started to live up to that expectation, perhaps more so recently than in the past? Gee, there are many lawyers who are like that, who will argue the case on either side 
for two shillings. And it really doesn't matter to them which side they happen to be on. And actually, a, a good lawyer ought to be prepared to take a client on either side of the lawsuit or to prosecute or defend for that matter. So there's a certain, I was going to say plasticity, maybe even indifference to the rightness, inherent rightness or wrongness of the client's cause that is a part of what we ask of lawyers and what a good lawyer possesses. But that's not all. If that flexibility or indifference isn't tempered by the ability and willingness to say to a client who is about to make a fool of himself or herself, you shouldn't do this. Not only are you likely to lose, but you will harm the very thing you're after here. So you need to pause and think about what you want. And I can talk to you about that if you would like. But we need to take a time out and review the state of play with an eye not to whether we can prevail in this particular little tit-for-tat, but whether this is serving you in your life and it's something that you really want. I think people often have a pretty low opinion of lawyers because they meet lawyers when they need them and they need them when they find themselves in the jaws of the law. And that is a formidable, and I think many people experience it as an unpleasant, if not destructive, power. And the lawyers who inhabit the precincts of the law so comfortably, I, I think are just inevitably associated in people's minds with the awfulness of law itself. And that's completely understandable to, to me. Some people, I think, do have a good experience with the lawyers that represent them. But even when they win the case, I think the going to law often leaves a bad taste in their mouths. I don't know that it's much better or worse today than it's ever been. When I wrote The Lost Lawyer, gosh, now almost 30 years ago, it seemed to me that things were getting worse. I don't know that I would say they've gotten worse still. I don't know. There are plenty of opportunities and ways in which a young person can be a wonderful, successful, and happy practitioner of the law. Well, I think part of that story, is, which permeates the other work, is this idea of how this vocational ideal has taken over in terms of where when people are trying to figure out how to live or why to live, right, at least in the United States, you define yourself by, in many ways by your job, but you don't really contextualize your job within some sense of higher meaning, right? You also talk about how lawyers, if you know, the best lawyers, they, they don't actually make this distinction between their jobs and their lives, right? That their occupation permeates more or less all aspects of who they are. But for other people, they're probably going to have this division between kind of, okay, this is what I do to pay the bills, and then this is who I am as a person. How has the educational kind of business been taken over by this vocational ideal? Is there any room left for what used to be taught in the humanities within a university? And if the universities don't perform this role, if they don't perform this role, where are people supposed to go? 
where are people to figure out, right, what the meaning of life is? Yeah. Young people arrive on the doorstep of Yale College, where I teach undergraduates, you know, at the age of 17 or 18, and they really don't have a clue what they ought to do or need to do in college. They have some vague notion that it's important to prepare for a career or to begin to prepare for a career. I think most of them recognize that will take some postgraduate education of one kind or another, but they need to take the first steps in college. So they immediately begin asking around, looking around, and plotting a course that they think will lead to some vocationally positive result that will set them up for a career, even though they may not quite yet know what that career will be. It's difficult to talk them out of that frame of mind. It's difficult to talk their parents out of it. It's pretty deeply entrenched. The faculty, for their part, are increasingly disinterested in teaching in the spirit and to the end that we've been discussing. They are professionals also. They are members of a discipline, professors of English or philosophy or law. They have a career to make themselves. That means writing and publishing. And they don't have the time to be distracted by undergraduates who are interested in a general education as opposed to specialized vocational training. So the students don't want it. The faculty are disinclined to provide it. We have a failure on the demand side and on the supply side too. And as a result, the old ideal of liberal learning as a preparation for life in general and for vocational life very broadly conceived has gone by the boards and it's in a pretty anemic state these days. And your question is a good one. If young people aren't going to find this in our colleges and universities, where will they find it? Where can they look to find some semblance of the liberal, the soulful education that our best colleges, at least once upon a time, prided themselves on providing? Well, yeah, I was hoping you'd have an answer to that because <laughs> I, I'm not sure that it seems like it'd be quixotic to try to expect our educational institutions to reverse course and start reinstituting a liberal arts education. I think it's not, it seems like that ship has sailed, right? Maybe, yeah, maybe this should be my, because I am an, an optimist, temperamentally, should be my last word on the subject. Nothing beautiful and fine can be lost forever. The appetite for these things is perennial. There will come a time, I hope I live to see it, when old institutions will remember what they were or new ones will arise to offer something better in response to the unquenchable passion for advancement in the work of living, the work of the soul. That is so deeply embedded in our essential human equipment that it can never be lost. The only question is how long will it remain in exile before 
someone uh, or some group of someones or some institutions see that there is a golden opportunity to bring it back to the center of the light. Now, I want to end with one last question, which is about being a born-again pagan. And I think we're very careful to choose this title. I know you could have chosen a different one. You could have talked about pantheism, or you could have even you talked about secular humanism and said, hey, let's confessions of a secular humanist. But what did you mean? Why specifically did you choose to call yourself a born-again pagan? And to what extent do you think, if you were to take the pulse of people, intellectual people who are university-educated, to what extent do you think this is something which the set of values, the set of desires, the set of aspirations are shared by most people. Do you think that this is, that you're articulating a viewpoint which is held, if not explicitly, implicitly by a large number of people? And do the folks who are dismissive of your efforts, do they probably in some degree agree with you without necessarily understanding that they agree with you? Yes and yes, emphatically. I think if I didn't believe that, if I thought that I was just clearing my own throat rather than speaking on behalf or attempting to speak on behalf of a very large number of like-minded people who have similar thoughts and feelings but haven't quite found the words to express them, to articulate them, or to put them together in an organized way, if I thought that, I don't know that I would have spent the time and energy I have writing these books. I think that the day is coming, that it's bound to come when this view, I'm certainly not the only one to offer a version of it, when this view in one or another of its appealing forms will be openly and widely recognized as a source of spiritual enlightenment and solace in an age of disenchantment. As to the title, of course, born again sounds in a Christian register. Pagan is the most powerful anti-Christian word in our entire lexicon. So putting them together is an intentional oxymoron. How can you be a Christian anti-Christian, a born again pagan? It doesn't make any sense. What I meant to convey maybe in an overly cute way in the title, but do explain at considerable length in the book, is that what distinguishes the modern paganism or pantheism, if you will, of Spinoza in particular, and some other thinkers too, who I would characterize as born-again pagans, what distinguishes them from their predecessors in the ancient world from Aristotle in particular, who was the the pagan thinker par excellence, is the transforming effect that the long middle passage from the ancient world to the modern one, through various forms of Christian belief, the transformation this wrought in the essential meaning and character of ancient paganism which coming out of that 1,500-year-long Christian rebirth left us with something which is recognizably pagan in the sense that it is no longer tethered to the doctrine of creation or the belief that God and the world are 
fundamentally distinct, but yet is so radically different in its conception of the nature of substance, of God, of divinity, from Aristotle's idea that only the radicalism of Christian belief can explain how we get from one paganism to the other. So I'm a very attracted to Aristotle, but I'm not an Aristotelian pagan. There's too much that Aristotle leaves out of the picture. I'm certainly not a born-again Christian. There's a ton in Augustine that appeals to me that's deep and enlightening, but I'm not with that program either. So I want a third option on the menu, which mixes and matches the best of these two theological alternatives and avoids their worst. And uh, it's my born-again paganism that does it, I think. Of course, I'm just stealing all of this from Spinoza. And if my book does nothing more than lead a few of my readers back to Spinoza, then I have, I feel like I've served the cause well. Well, I think you're a bit like me. You've got these conversations going on in your head between all of these folks that you've read and yourself, even though they're long dead. And I think it's been great to have, to be like a fly on the wall of your brain (laughs) in reading these books. And so it's really been fantastic. I think everyone should check out After Disbelief. We could have spent, I think, many hours talking about all of these books because they're quite thoughtful. Confessions of a Born Again Pagan, The Assault on American Excellence, Educations, and of course, The Lost Lawyer, which I need to find somewhere in my storage locker (laughs) and go back and review it. Thanks so much, Tony. Appreciate it, and hope to see you again sometime soon. In person. That would be nice. Thank you, Greg. Thanks for inviting me on. It's been just really a joy talking to you. I'm very grateful for your goodwill and the generous attention you've paid to my books. It means a lot to me. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.